1975, I spent six weeks in the Soviet Union. It was the height of the Cold War. Brezhnev was president. It was a dark, cold place. I remember coming home thinking, if you just want to exist and, and go to work and then come home and not think or have an opinion, you could live in Russia. But if you want to thrive and dream or step out, it's impossible. I came home with a, a new appreciation for the freedom that we have in this country, the freedom to, to step out, to take responsibility, to create, to, to make significant change. God has truly blessed us. But with blessing comes responsibility. And so the question becomes, how are we using our responsibilities, our blessings? Are we keeping them for ourselves or are we using them to bless others? See, increasingly as I read scripture, I'm drawn into the story, the big story of what God is doing. And in doing so, I receive this fresh vision as to his call to not grasp onto things, but instead let go, to use what we have as a, as a blessing for others, to use what we have to expand God's kingdom present. I mean, we, we see this way back with the call of Abraham where, where God says, leave your father's house and your people and your country and go to the place that I will show you and I will bless you that you might be a blessing to the nations. And we see it with Jesus, who, who didn't consider equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he left heaven and came to earth and became obedient even to death on a cross that we might be blessed, that we might have life. God's response to Jesus giving of himself was to lift him up and to make him Lord of all, to bless him. And it was from that physician that Jesus calls his disciples. He calls us saying that all authority, all power has been given to him. And so go and make disciples of the nations. Bless them. Show them what it means to live as I have taught you. To teach them about life in me and servanthood. And I will be with you always. My presence, my power, my blessings. And so the question is, how are we doing? I mean, if we, if we can't fail, we can take great risks. And if we have great resources and great blessings, we're in a position to give away great resources and great blessings. We have been blessed to be a blessing. Now, all this leads me to my favorite verse and our prophet for today. My favorite verse is found in Zephaniah 3.17, and it says this. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And what a great promise of blessing. Learning to, to live out this verse takes just a great load off our lives. Living with this verse in the forefront brings peace and joy and celebration no matter what our circumstances. Now, I, I need to admit that over the years I've had a number of different favorite verses. I, I've been for a long time, Jeremiah 29, 11. 
For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I mean, it's an awesome verse, isn't it? And then you read it in context. Jeremiah says that just before he says you're going off for 70 years in exile. I decided I needed a different favorite verse. So Zephaniah 3.17, I mean, God's with us. He, he's a mighty warrior. He fights for us. He saves. He brings victory. He takes great delight in us. I mean, I love that. There's so much in this world that would bring us down. And here it says God takes delight in us. In fact, he doesn't rebuke us in his love, but rejoices over us with singing. I mean, think of a, a mom with a newborn baby. I mean, they are cool words, words to hold on to, words that in the midst of gloom bring sunlight. But then again, there's the context. The verse comes at the end of Zephaniah. The book begins not with sunlight, but with deep darkness. Zephaniah 1 says, the, Lord, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah during the reign of Josiah I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men, man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. The great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. The day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. I mean, it really makes you want to keep reading, doesn't it? You see, Zephaniah is known as the prophet of judgment. He is declaring the judgment of God first on Judah and then on the whole earth. Why? Well, as you read through the book, you discover it's because that even the people who claim to belong to God are arrogant and complacent and stagnant and self-absorbed and self-indulgent and self-centered. They trust in themselves and, and their wealth. They're unwilling to accept correction. They're no different than the unbelieving nations around them. They're double-minded, following the ways of the world while having a form of religious worship. They combine reliance on God with a reliance on their own backup plans of doing whatever it takes to secure their own personal dreams. You see, the list of sins that are found in Zephaniah is all-encompassing. In fact, if you were to continue to read down through chapter 1, you would find Zephaniah declaring that God is coming with searchlights to search out every hidden deed, every shameful act, every thought, everything not of God, and to bring it out into the open. King Hosea heard Zephaniah's words, and he sought the Lord. In fact, if you know Old Testament history, it was during Hosea's reign that the temple was cleared out and, and reopened, and they found the book of the law, and they reinstated the Passover feast. But for most of the people, the reforms were only outward in scope. Their hearts were not affected. Their lives were not transformed. And so within 50 years, the Babylonians would sweep down on Jerusalem and carry the people off into exile. 23 times in the book of Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is referred to, the day of God's judgment. And it's only three chapters long. 
Now, Zephaniah's audience actually looked forward to the day of the Lord. They saw it as a day of judgment on the nations around them, a day when God would punish their neighbors. And chapter 2 of Zephaniah gets really specific as God names the neighbors to the west and the east and the south and the north, declaring punishment on them too. But God's wrath, so to speak, was to begin with his people. Why? Because rather than being a blessing, they had become arrogant. They had kept a blessing to themselves, relying on what they had rather than God. They were no longer serving God, but they were asking God to serve them. Zephaniah's prophecies were meant to be words of warnings that people could pay attention to and make changes accordingly, like Hosea does. And so our first point this morning is danger. The day of the Lord is near. Because even though Zephaniah's immediate context was to the southern nation of Judah warming at the battle and the exile, his words speak also to the time of Jesus and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and to the second coming of Jesus. They are words to us. Warning. The day of the Lord is near. Will we heed the warning? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not always good about listening to warnings. I mean, I've been in plenty of hotels where the fire alarm goes off. Do I go running outside? No. I mean, at best, I go out into the hallway and see if I smell smoke. I mean, we're all generally really good at denial and avoidance. But God, through Zephaniah, was calling for the people to listen up, to allow him to search their hearts, to expose the attitudes and actions that were not of him, and then to take corrective action. You see, God is jealous for the sake of his name. He wants the whole world to know of his love and his blessing. And when the very people who are called by his name are not reflecting his character and love to other people, he brings judgment. Now, talking about the the wrath of God, the punishment of God, the judgment of God is is not a popular topic at at any time. I mean, I, I can remember my very first sermon. I have not the slightest idea what I preached, but I do remember somebody coming up to me afterwards and jokingly saying, oh, gee, I thought it was going to be a hellfire and damnation sermon. That was over 40 years ago, and this is probably the closest I will ever get to preaching such a sermon. But having said that, I think it is important to understand what God's judgment is all about. Its purpose has less to do with punishment and more to do with purification. I mean, that's our second point. Judgment is not necessarily a bad thing. It is good. Judgment is for purification, for setting that which is wrong right. I mean, think about parenting a child. I mean, I can still remember the last time my dad spanked me. Okay, I'm old, this was back in the 60s, and he used his hand. And it was really more humiliating than hurtful. But before he spanked me, he said, this is going to hurt me more than it will hurt you. You see, my dad never punished me to hurt me. He did it to get my attention, to get me to change my ways. And if somebody were to hurt your child or or somebody you love, or when we see violence to another person, what do we do? We cry foul. We want the person who did the hurting held accountable. 
We want the wrong put right. We want justice. We expect justice. We just want it for others, not for ourselves. God's justice, God's punishment, so to speak, is to put that which is wrong right. It is for the purpose of purification. You see, God, like a loving parent when their children are hurt or, or when they make decisions that hurt themselves or when they're not grateful but instead demanding, he gets hurt. He even gets mad, but it's not an emotional knee-jerk anger. It's an anger that is rightly placed and for right reasons. It is for correction. Remember, God's ultimate desire is to completely rid the world of evil, to recreate the world as he intended it to be created, a world of purity and peace and love and joy, a world without fear or shame, a world of blessing. He's beginning that restoration work with his people, with us. He wants us to reflect his character, to live by his values in his ways. He wants to bless us so his blessings flow through us to other people. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about Zephaniah's declaration of judgment is that God's punishment was in the reverse order of how things were created. Were, were created. I mean, going back to, to chapter 1 of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth first, and then he creates the fish and the birds and the animals, and finally man. And in Zephaniah 1, though, it says that God will sweep away man first, and then the animals, then the birds, and finally the fish. And if you were to read through Zephaniah, the list of evils that are listed in the chapter 3 of Zephaniah are actually all found in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel story. You see, God's purification process is to turn back the curse of Genesis 1, the curse of the Tower of Babel, and to restore the world to its intended purposes. And that's the big picture of what God is doing in human history, and what God is doing in our world today. I mean, think of a, a, a drug addict or an alcoholic. I mean, our hearts go out to them. They are so out of control. They're hurting themselves and all too often hurting those around them. But in order to change, they need to name the problem. And so it is with sin. Those attitudes and choices and mindsets and actions and agenda that run contrary to God, that hurt us and hurt others and hurt God. In order to be rid of these, we need to name them. We need to expose them. God's judgment is for purification. Now, having said that, I mean, you've all heard the quote, if you find a perfect church, don't go there. It'll no longer be perfect. God's intention in human history is to set the world right back to its intended purposes in the first place. If God is working through the events of human history and the church to recreate a world free of injustice and evil, a world of God present, a world of blessing, a world of love where people work together shoulder to shoulder without fear or, or shame, or, but in purity and love. And those words fear and shame show up over and over again in Zephaniah because they refer back to Genesis 1. If God's intent is perfection, what hope do we have? We are anything but perfect. 
Well, after a whole list of warnings in chapter one, chapter two of Zephaniah begins like this. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and all that passes like windblown shaft, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all the humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. You see, Zephaniah is calling the people not to run from the coming judgment, not to pretend they're not part of the problem, not to run from the judge, but actually instead to turn and run to the judge, to find shelter in the very one who is coming in judgment. The words of Zephaniah are that no matter how far any of us have strayed from God, if we would just turn to him and rather than trying to defend ourselves or cry out in anger, if we would be silent and expose ourselves to his searchlight, allowing him to point out where we hurt ourselves and others and him. If we would seek humility and seek his righteous ways, we would find shelter. We would be hidden from the coming judgment. Zephaniah, his name means the Lord hides, the Lord protects, the Lord preserves. You see, there are two possibilities when it comes to the day of judgment, judgment or shelter. God giving us over to the consequences of our actions, like, like we give an alcoholic over to the consequences of their actions, praying that they'll hit rock bottom, or our being hid in Jesus. And so our third point this morning is that we need to find shelter in the judge. The book of Zephaniah begins in darkness, but it ends in glorious light. Chapter 3, we find these words. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad. Rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, do not let your hands go limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who slaves. He will take great delight in you. In his love you will no, he will no longer re rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. We can't save ourselves from the coming judgment of God, but we can find shelter in being put in the cleft of the rock, in the person of Jesus who takes the punishment on himself. If we try and save ourselves, we're going to fail miserably. We're never going to obtain what we long for. But if in humility, we put ourselves in the care of Jesus. We find a warrior who won't rebuke us, but one who has the power to save us. In Jesus, we find one who rejoices over us. You know, as I kind of wrote these words a couple days ago, I thought back to my dad. And the time I came home one Friday afternoon in the sixth grade, completely defeated. I'd received two Fs and a D on my first quarter report card. In tears, I handed the report card to my dad. My dad's response, I love you. I'm so proud of you. This does not define you. My love is greater. Go out, play, enjoy life. That was Friday. On Sunday afternoon when I was going out to play, he asked about my homework. I said I didn't have any. He said, two Fs and a D, you have homework. Um, <laughs> but his first order of business the next week 
was a parents' meeting with my teacher that led to my discovering that I have a hearing problem. I mean, this is a small illustration of what happens with Father God. When we come to him in humility, admitting our defeat, laying our lives before him to be searched out by him, as we come to him in helplessness, throwing ourselves on him rather than trying to do it ourselves, his response is to love us, to sing over us, then to step in and do whatever needs to be done through the work of the cross and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it ourselves. We need to find shelter in the judge. There is a day of judgment that is coming. It's a day actually of purification, a day of setting things right. And the way to survive that day is to find shelter in Jesus, in the spotlight of his loving correction and the forgiveness of the cross, where he takes everything that is wrong onto himself, enabling us through his spirit to be completely cleansed and purified to begin again afresh, to be transformed. The day of the Lord, Zephaniah talks about, as I mentioned, is a day that was fulfilled with the Babylonian exile. It found a fulfillment in the first coming of Jesus, and it'll have its fulfillment in the return of Jesus, when all that is wrong in this world will finally be put right. But it also has a daily fulfillment as we bring our lives to Jesus letting him expose our sin in order that we might become like him now. Chapter 3 ends with a list of all the things that God will do. Over and over and over again, we find the words, not you will, but I will. You see, our last point is this. We need to let Jesus. We need to enjoy Jesus because he's the one who does all the work. It says, I'm going to remove from you all that is a burden or reproach. I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue. I will gather. I will give praise and honor. I will bring you home. I will restore your fortunes. I will. I will. If you read Zephaniah, you'll discover that even though Zephaniah warns of the coming judgment of God, it is so that the people turn back and shelter, not in themselves, not in their wealth or their ingenuity or their arms or alliances, but in humble reliance and obedience to Jesus, letting Jesus take the lead, waiting on Jesus, enjoying Jesus, living in the power of Jesus, letting him do all the work his way and his timing. And a really fast illustration, this, this last Sunday, a week ago, I spent six hours in the Houston airport. My plane kept getting delayed and delayed and then canceled, and then a new plane that was delayed and delayed and then canceled. At one point, somebody walked by me and said, I am amazed at how calm you are and how patient you are. My response to the person was, well, you know, thanks. I have been praying. I've been praying that the agent who's trying to help me, who is so stressed out already, doesn't feel me adding to her stress. Now, I eventually got home 24 hours later. God got me home. But I think what he really wanted me there was to be a witness to his character and his love, not only to that agent, to that others who were in the room watching my actions. 
There's a verse in Luke 21 where Jesus is talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the fall, the coming destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem and, and the end times. It, it, the words sound very much like Zephaniah. But at the end of that passage, we find these words. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You see, we live in a world that's filled with uncertainties and distresses and injustices and evil and deceit and pain and death and what seems to be a never-ending cycle of COVID. But hear the good news. God is working in the midst of all this. We often don't see it or get it or understand it, but God is working to set things right. We can't set things right. And truth be told, we're part of the problem but God has told us what that problem is. It's, it's our following the world's ways rather than his kingdom ways. It's our living like the world rather than putting on the character and the values of Jesus. It's our listening to the world rather than the truth of God's word. It's our taking things under our own hands, trying to build life ourselves rather than letting God do the building and living like he lived, loving sacrificially and blessing others. Jesus has told us what the true future holds. He's coming back and establishing his kingdom here on earth. A kingdom without mourning or crying or pain. A, a kingdom of his presence. A kingdom of healing and creativity. A kingdom of the world as he intended it to be in the first place. The future is ours to be had now. It's a blessing to be enjoyed now and then shared with others. Jesus is finding, is inviting us to find hope, not in ourselves, not in the things of this world, but in him. Zephaniah is calling the people to a course correction. Will we listen? Will we give our lives over to his searchlight? Will we allow his spirit to purify us? Will we let him save us rather than trying to save ourselves? Will we learn to in humble obedience enjoy him, letting him do all the work. See, our job is not to work for blessing, but to receive and live in the blessings of Jesus. Not creating a life for ourselves here and now, but displaying it to others. The life that God has for eternity, he wants us to show others and to pass on his character and his love and his blessings as we become a part of God's story. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He takes great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your blessings. Lord, have your way in us that we might be a blessing to others. Come Holy Spirit, we wanna hide in you and live for you. To your praise and glory, amen.